Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Human Race podcast discusses subjects that will be upsetting for some, including infertility, miscarriage and stillbirth. Support is available. Check the show description for details. Kia ora and welcome to The Human Race, a podcast about those who are in the race of their lives to create a life. My name's Nadine Higgins. I'm a broadcaster, a journalist, and for the past four years, I've been trying to make a baby with my husband. That's me. I'm Dan. And we reckon infertility is lonely enough without making it a dirty little secret. So we wanted to bring you stories from those people that have been through it. So even if you don't want to talk about it, maybe those stories can give you hope, or at the very least, make you feel a little less alone. This is a collab podcast between Stuff and Wabi Sabi Media. The fairy tales tell us you fall in love, maybe get married and start a family. Simple, romantic, easy, right? But getting pregnant can be tricky, we know, but so can meeting someone to start a family with. Jessica Jordan always knew she wanted to be a mum, but decided rather than wait and hope for the right person to come along, she'd go it alone. Hi Jessica and welcome to The Human Race. Hello, thank you for having me. Oh, Oh. thanks for being with us. Yeah, our pleasure. (laughs) Jessica, you decided at a young age, around 21 I think, that you wanted to be a mother no matter what. Now, why did you decide at such a young age? Um, I... I just always wanted to be a mum. So from the time that I was a a toddler, like I just had this huge um, maternal drive and to nurture. And so um, I, I, for some reason, I kind of knew from sort of like 12 or 13, I was like, I want to have babies, but I think it's going to be hard. It was really weird. I don't know. And so I actually, it was a bit ridiculous. Like I started seeing baby things and buying them and like consciously making the decision to like prepare to be a mum when I was like, I think I bought my first thing when I was like 14. It's just that maternal instinct. Yeah, maternal drive. Yeah, maternal drive. Like I wanted to breastfeed my dolls when I was like a little toddler. Like I just very much wanted to be a mum and wanted to nurture and wanted to bring, you know, small small creatures in well and then you became a midwife right so that's very fitting with that kind of yeah nurturing nurturing maternity yeah but at what stage do you go okay now now's when we're gonna do it and there's not a person on the scene or was there an age you had in your head I had endosurgery when I was 21 like I had a couple of surgeries three or four months apart um and yeah basically this the the gynecologist said to me as long as you kind of think about having babies by the time you're about 28 30 and I was like okay well but I think I had made the decision that it was going to be 28 that I was gonna and then I pushed it out to 30 because I just thought I'll give the universe, God, whoever, knight in shining armour, a little bit more time <laughs> to turn up. Um, but it was sort of like 28 to 30 was, yeah, if there wasn't anyone, then I was just going to crack on because I didn't want to sacrifice, like knowing that I had endometriosis and I did have a low ovarian reserve. Um, I think initially it was 
seven or six um, pack a moles, which is pretty low. Um, Sorry, what does that mean? So that's your anti-mullerian hormone. Oh, so, so they measure in, what did you say? Pick-a-moles. Pick moles Yeah. Um, I th- oh, gosh. Yeah, gosh. <laughs> Get the encyclopedia out. Um, <laughs> yeah, so pick-a-moles per litre, basically. And um, it, there's a graph and you kind of fit on it in terms of your number and your age and all that kind of thing. So six is, is pretty low. So there were forces at play. You'd had endometriosis, your egg reserves were low, and I think you'd already also had a surgery. Yep. I'd had two endosurgeries, and one was a diagnostic, and then the second one was where they actually removed the endometriosis. But there was also maybe an injury from when you were young. Yeah, so when they went in for the first surgery, it was diagnostic because that surgeon at the time didn't have um, advanced laparoscopic skills, but the hospital wanted to check. Um, And she went in and she was like, oh, your right tube looks really weird. Like, I don't know, what's going on? Is that endo? You know, what, what is going on there? And my mum, who's obviously not a gynecologist, um, was like, oh, I wonder if that happened when you had surgery when you were a baby. So I had an inguinal hernia. So um, yeah, down low in my groin, actually on both sides, I had bilateral inguinal hernias. And they were that was when I was six weeks old and they were repaired when I was six months old. And basically mum was like, I think that the surgeon damaged your right tube when he did that because it's all so close together and a six-month-old baby is so, so tiny. Yeah, um, and it's a general surgeon and they just do the whole body and, you know, there was probably a trainee. Um, and so then they went into the second surgery and they tried to flush the tubes and... Um, couldn't. Yeah, yeah, and took the images and the cameras were not quite as, like this is more than 10 years ago now, so the laparoscopic cameras were probably not quite as advanced as they are now. And, yeah, we just kind of had this theory that was just a possible theory that, that it had happened then. Um, and then um, when I decided that I did want to get cracking and have a baby, I um, approached a, a private, I had health insurance by then, I approached a private um, gynecologist who, yeah, is, a, is my best friend's husband. Um, and he did uh, another laparoscopy just to kind of make sure that everything was um, was honky-dory. But by that time, the cameras had advanced and he was able to just, I don't know, he may have just looked at a different angle and he could just see exactly what had happened, like what he thought had happened and yeah the tube was just had just been basically either slashed or they'd put a suture around it and just pulled like cut the fallopian tube in half so then we spent like a year or more fighting ACC um, to say like this is what happened this is what this is what this professor is saying has happened fought them tooth and nail and they agreed that the injury happened and that was what what had happened. I had to meet with a psychiatrist to assess the level of my injury. Um and then yeah, they agreed it was it was covered. Um which meant that fertility treatment was then covered. So you're at the point to, as you say, crack on. Yeah. Um, what did your friends and family think of you going it alone as as it were? Yeah, they were all pretty excited. Yeah, yeah. Um, no naysayers. Not anyone that matters. <laughs> That's <laughs> the key. That doesn't mean there are, aren't any. It means yeah. no one whose opinion you value. Nobody, right? yeah, nobody in the initial stages anyway. Nobody, like there have been a few little comments, especially from um, like 
slightly more conservative people. But I, I yeah, what I decided was I wasn't going to, because my fertility was a bit compromised, I wasn't going to sacrifice a potential child. That waiting could have meant that it just never happened. Right. So I'm going to throw away or compromise or, or let go of my most fertile years. Like we're, we're at our most fertile right at this minute mm. and it only gets worse. Mm-hmm. Um, Aside from, you know, um, lifestyle changes and stuff, but for women it's like, you know, age is your biggest thing. Legitimately a ticking clock. Yeah, and I had seen so many beautiful women who had never, yeah, never found anyone and hit menopause and just missed that opportunity and, like, a lot of people, yeah, say, oh, you know, you just – person's going to come along like actually for and some people are they do- it doesn't he, he or she does not come along mm. people can be quite judgy about that too they're like oh is she too fussy is this are his standards too high i'm like if you're going to spend the rest of your life with somebody i think your standards should be high <laughs> you know or the right person comes along but just a little bit later in life and then as you say you've, you've, missed, the years, the you've missed the missed the window those years so it sounds like you've got this great supportive group of whanau and friends around you now and it's time you've decided to go for it how do you find a donor that was the thing so i was told that the waiting list i think i'm actually still on the waiting list that i've heard that story so many times they yeah. go on the waiting list and you never hear from them again yeah yeah yeah. i think i think i am well it, unless they've taken me off the waiting list without my consent well, that's fine i got a baby um, i'm sorry it's just like a government waiting list or, yeah, yeah yeah so that's a government waiting list but like different clinics diff- there's a few different clinics around the country like obviously there's a big the big the main yeah. fertility associates but then within um, say in Auckland and i think in Wellington there are other fertility clinics being run Auckland hospital has their own fertility clinic mm. so there's waiting lists uh, yeah there's sperm and egg donors that are signed up to a particular clinic um, and yeah, so I'm on the waiting list at Fertility Associates in <laughs> Hamilton, and um, I was told it would could be up to three years. And I think I had I had talked with someone who had was also on the waiting list, and they'd already been on for two years at that point, and were still waiting. So I was like, right, we need to find a solution. Mm. Um, yeah, a friend had offered me her husband's sperm just kind good of, of her was yeah. he in on that did, yeah, did he get the heads up on this or? <laughs> wasn't aware of the first initial conversation but I was like awesome I approached her a year later and he'd since had a vasectomy oh, oh okay hard to <laughs> get the goods out there yeah. <laughs> so um yeah and in the meantime I she had told me about this um this forum called NZ surrogacy that connects intended parents with donors and egg donors and sperm donors and embryo donors and um, not necessary to surrogates, but that's what it was called. But basically I I joined the forum and I posted it classified and um, in the meantime she approached her best friend as well um, and was like, hey, I offered... We offered our sperm to Jessica, but he said it was sent to me. And yeah, and I posted on this forum, but um, but Stuart, our donor, was a is a um, was a moderator on the forum, so he saw that he got the message from mm-hmm. Alison. Oh, so it came through two angles. Yeah, and he was yeah. Like, so when people ask me, I'm like, it's kind of complex. Yeah. Um, but yeah, basically, then he sent me a Facebook message and was like, "Hey, look, I would really like to help you to have a family." So oh, that was amazing. Um, and he actually already had made some deposits um, at Fertility Associates, um, which is another kind of story. He was going to donate to someone, and then they ended up finding um, finding a. A partner, so they went down their own 
their own route. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, so we've got some of Stuart's stuff on on ice. Yes. Now, do you do you go straight into? I'm going to throw a couple of acronyms at you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Do you go IVF or DIY to start? So we did both. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so we did both. So there was a little bit of a waiting list. Um, so I didn't need to wait for the like when you use um, donor sperm, you've got a it's got to go through a quarantine so kind like of a freezing process. Period, yes, isn't it? Yeah. but it didn't need to do that because it had already done it. But my IVF ticket hadn't come up yet, so there was a bit of a waiting list um, there, and I think I waited eighteen months. There's always so much waiting. Yeah, in this process. it's like literally <laughs> the theme of it is like hurry up and wait. Oh. That's Absolutely. It. <laughs> um, hurry up and wait yeah. and just like get all the things you need. Oh, and, and here's another curveball, yeah, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> we really need you to come in and see the fertility clinic, but she doesn't have an appointment for three months. So <laughs> just ridiculous. No, mine was actually really great, but I know some some doctors you're not able to get in with um, very easily. So, yeah, we had the waiting list and I thought, I just want to try. Um, by that time, I knew... The surgeon had seen um, that the one tube was damaged and the other one was now subsequently blocked um, with endo for whatever reason. So I had like basically what we thought was kind of no chance of conceiving naturally. But there were a few little things that made me think, mm-hmm, maybe it's worth having a hoon. So we... That's on my pudding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there were a few things that meant that, uh, like, okay, do you know what? I'm gonna give it. A, I'm gonna give it a go. So we did home inseminations. We did like I can't actually remember how how many, but I think we did five or six. So basically, Mum also thinks thinks this is one of the hilarious parts of it. Was um, so I got some kit. I managed to acquire some kit, which was just stuff that wasn't necessarily meant for home insemination. But I was like, that'll be really good. So. Can I ask what kind of kit? Oh, so basically a long tube, catheter type tube, Mm -hmm. with a little bit of rigidity so that I could use a colleague who I had taught everything she knew about a particular procedure that I do as a midwife. Um, I knew that she would be able to basically do do IUI. So not just uh, not using just a syringe in, or in, intravaginal. No, yep. it was like full on IUI. And so wow. that's where they, you actually put it into, into the uterus, uterus, which is actually not recommended to do mm. that with unwashed sperm um, because it can introduce all kinds of whatever. But I was very trusting of my donor, and yeah, and you mean you can also have cervical shock and stuff like that. But I didn't. I'm a tough nut, so I was like, <laughs> we are doing this. So yeah, basically, yeah, six times, six months. They weren't all consecutive because we had to take breaks a few times, mm. a few different things. And yeah, we did this home IUI. So he, so we, yeah, organised that he would come over. You know, he would be at home at his home, and he would produce a sample because he didn't want to produce a sample in my house. He think he thought it would just not be. Yeah, it'd psych him out a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and then, yeah, he'd produce a sample at home. Then he would scoot over to ours with a, with, the, with this cup between his legs or in his pocket or keeping it warm. Between his boobs, that. yeah. <laughs> yeah, keeping it warm. And then, um, yeah, and bring it in. And then my friend, yeah, would be there. And um, we would, yeah, do the, do the business um, with... It- Okay, so obviously that didn't, you no. gave it a good nudge, Yeah, didn't quite work. Yeah. And I'm sure, as you say, it's all a bit of a blur now, but yes. you did multiple rounds of IVF, right? Yes. Well, you I did four. Yeah, I remember all that. Yeah. yeah. Um, egg collections during lockdown. Yes. Um, 
Yeah. That's a lot. Yeah, it was a lot. <laughs> so it was a lot, but I think um, there's a real, like everybody's got a bit of a tapestry. Well, not a bit. Like everybody has a tapestry of their life, of what makes up, yeah, their journey of of humanness. And so we dived into the first cycle in December of 2019. It was, uns- well, we made one embryo. So I got six eggs and made one embryo, put it back fresh, and it didn't stick. And at that time, my dad was going through getting a diagnosis of cancer. And <sighs> so it was really So much going on all at once. Because I was like, Dad, do you think I need to just wait? Like, do you think we need to wait and just focus on your health? health? And he was like, no. You just focus on your process. Um, I'll be fine. It was so lovely of him. And that was, yeah, like... That was that told me how how much he really supported me on on in my journey. Um, subsequently, he got really very sick very quickly, and the cancer was metastatic, and which means it spread through the whole body um, without kind of us realizing. And he got really sick, so I had the treatment in um, December two thousand and nineteen, and then he was diagnosed that month, and then February um, twenty twenty, just like three months later he died and so that was like the most devastating awful horrific thing that I have ever gone through and that was such a contrast to me with the fertility journey because the fertility for me feels like new hope and new life and the opportunity to create new people new generations and his whakapapa and his yeah his his name and his life like his life living on and I was just really excited about it I was really excited about it and super positive because I had this contrast of like horrible awful death (laughs) like of just awful grief and then this this beautiful opportunity and yeah, so was, something to focus yeah, on so I was positive about it and that's what I mean about the tapestry of it because that was like the first thread and it was like the first cycle we got one embryo it didn't stick dad got sick dad died and then I was able to go straight back and in, straight into my next not straight into but about four months later into my next funded government funded cycle um so we started that six weeks after my dad died and I was really positive I was like yep cool I knew it wasn't going to work the first time I just felt it wasn't going to work the first time but this is going to be the the one and then we went into COVID lockdown of course we did but nobody knew how COVID would affect embryos or pregnancy or anything like that so there was just radio silence across the fertility community in terms of like People, I had started my cycle. I was injecting myself with like thousands of dollars worth of drugs. Like, granted, not my money, but also, like, a, it is a lot of money, and it's a lot. And it has an impact on your yeah, body. Exactly, it's not nothing. Yeah. So there was like no word about what we were going to, whether we were going to continue. But we did, and but we went into lockdown, and I yeah caught an Uber to my egg collection. Oh, so you had to go through that process all alone? Yeah, I did. But it was okay. It was like, it kind of just was like, yep, I'm a first, fiercely independent woman. Like, this is it. Here I am going to get Got my power. baby. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and my flatmate at the time actually picked me up from egg collection. But like, as you know, after egg collection, you're a bit stoned and <laughs> it's quite hilarious. Um, yeah. So that was really weird. And I think the most tricky time 
is like that. They've collected the eggs, you're waiting for fertilisation, and then you're waiting to see, like it's totally literally out of your hands and out of your uterus, you're waiting to see um, what happens and what continues to grow. Um, and then we had to freeze those embryos anyway because of COVID. So how many tries did it take to land on the embryo that became Hazel? Yeah, so we did those two cycles. We froze two. We put one back. It didn't stick. And then we had one in the freezer and we managed to get the approval from ACC. And even though we had the one embryo, we... I said, I'd like to do two back-to-back. They approved two cycles, so I was like, cool, I want to do two back-to-back cycles Mm. and get embryos while I'm young. And so we did a cycle. um, Just checking some facts here in the background. I'm on on, on the phone to make sure we've got the story right. (laughs) July 2019. So I did my third cycle in July 2020, and that was the cycle that we, we were out of, I think we'd out, we're out of two COVID lockdowns and that was the cycle that I decided, to, yeah, did two back-to-back cycles and the first one was the one that created Hazel. Um, I've kept like an Excel spreadsheet of, <laughs> because... I kind of wish we'd done that a bit more, but yeah, I, I like in my head. They I'm do like, start oh, to get a bit blurry. Oh, they do. And like my specialist was really, is really awesome. I love her. Um, but yeah, I, I want to be in charge of my health journey and my health information because it's my body and mm-hmm. and it's nobody else's so I keep my excel spreadsheet so that cycle the cycle three and that made hazel but it was a freeze all cycle because we were going to go straight into another IVF cycle which we did oh, that's full on yeah it was um but it was also awesome because I was like yeah power we're like, getting these embryos in yeah the bank. yeah <laughs> so um yeah hazel was that third cycle then we did the fourth cycle I did have a fresh transfer then we made two embryos I had a fresh transfer and got pregnant and that was just I was so elated I had my home pregnancy tests I saw the line getting darker and darker <laughs> and darker it was just the best feeling in the whole wide world because I had obviously negatives um for the two cycles before that two transfers and I was just elated and yeah seeing that line getting darker it was like the HCG is rising and then my blood test came and I think that it was like 39 or something and I think they like it to be like above 80 at the point that I was at um and they were like yeah like I was expecting them to say, you, yay, you're pregnant. Mm. And they were like, mm, yeah, so your HCG is only. Mm-hmm. Oh, the numbers um, get quite yeah, clinical. Yeah, too, and I can't they? even actually remember exactly, but but it was a, it was too low. And, and so we watched and watched and watched and it, it rose, but it rose inconsistently and then it went up a bit and then it went down a bit and then it went up again. Oh, so your heart's in your mouth the whole time. It was such a like, you're pregnant but you're not really pregnant or like it was, mm. yeah, it was just, you're kind of pregnant. That was it. Like you can't actually be kind of pregnant, but in this situation <laughs> I was kind of pregnant. Like my bloods showed that I was pregnant and yeah, they ended up seeing that there was a sac in the uterus, but that pregnancy didn't continue. It wasn't viable. And oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. So that was what they call a biochemical, but I think I ended up having, uh, um, like I was having quite a lot of pain and they were worried that it was ectopic or yeah, I ended up having a laparoscopy and DNC, um, which was a whole another thing really. It's quite a painful surgery to recover from the laparoscopy where they yeah. blow up your belly and yes. go in through your belly yes. button. It's, yes. It's yeah. nice. Yes. But I'd been used to the recovery because I think by that time I'd had three laparoscopies for endo. So right. I kind of, yeah, I knew about that recovery, but um, sort of. 
in a way, but this was all like emotionally charged yeah, with a pregnancy loss. Yeah. yeah. Um, but I, obviously I work at the hospital and so I had immense support from my colleagues um, and family, but um, everyone was really beautiful. And then they basically said after that, because um, that dragged on for like um, three weeks or something of trying to work out whether this was a viable pregnancy, um, maybe longer than that, maybe more like a month. Um, that was in the September, and they said that they wanted me to uh, have a three-month break to kind of let my hormones... Yeah, like, something was like just to sort of body, yeah. body to re-level itself. Yes, and... yeah, yeah. So my HCG came down, and it was fine. But, yeah, I had to take some months off, which was really annoying. <laughs> I was so bummed. Yeah, I was bummed. But we had another transfer in the December, early December, and yeah, that was successful. That was my girl. Okay. And so when did you get to be excited about that one, given what you'd just been through? Uh, I think it was, I haven't got the numbers written down in terms of the HCGs, but it was. This spreadsheet is detailed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, <heck. laughs> it's got the HCG level, yeah, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, in, in terms of the pregnancy with Hazel, though, how, how was that for you? Was it what you expected? Oh, I was being so pregnant? elated. Like, I was just so. I was so, so stoked. Um, yeah, it was anxiety provoking. And there's a lot, like, every step brings with it new anxieties. And for a person that lives with anxiety, like, you've just really got to find coping strategies after Relatable. going through. Relatable yeah. comment. <laughs> <laughs> after going through, like, such a massive, what I felt was a massive journey for IVF cycles and a miscarriage. And I know people do, like, some people do, like, 15 transfers. Oh, and that's the thing is I don't think you can compare it. Yeah. Because yeah. you were also going through this. Yeah, yeah. On your own. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so... It was. I was elated, to be honest. I was so elated. So obviously, the wanting to see the HCGs rising is the first anxiety. Okay, we want to see that, that it's doubling or more um, every forty-eight hours. I think it is. Yep. I know this. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> and um, yeah, wanting to wanting to see that, and then the next. And I kept having HCG tests because, like, even after I seeing my midwife, because I just wanted that reassurance. I think the last one was like. 350,000 or something because I just wanted reassurance. That, that sounds like a very convincing number. And I suppose like, at your work, do you also have access to, you know, can you listen to the baby's heartbeat and yeah. whenever you want? Yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> I've got a Doppler. I've got two Dopplers, to be honest, but that's not something that is recommended for for a person to do is to have a Doppler, but as a midwife, it was. So a Doppler is the thing the that. The fetal heart's on a cade thing that you listen to the baby's heartbeat. But I couldn't have heard it that early on. Um, yeah, so the first thing was seeing those HCGs rising. Then I started getting nausea and I was stoked. I was like, it's, yes. a, it's, it's a funny thing to celebrate, but it's <laughs> yeah. such a good I'm sign. Five weeks and I'm feeling nauseous. So <laughs> good. Um, and then the nausea kind of dissipated around like nine, ten weeks. And then, then I get you get to the scan, and I had one extra sneaky scan, and then I got to see the heartbeat. So that was like the next thing. And then the next thing is the twelve week, and like so. Yes, I was elated and I was so excited, and I was so bonded with the baby from the start. But yeah, there's just New anxiety, you know, new anxieties. You want to get to twenty weeks because then that's the anatomy scan and see that the baby's normal. I really wanted to know the sex, and then you want to get to like 23, 24 weeks because that's like peri viability, viability, and then you want to get to you know. So it's like the anxiety. You tick one off the list and then it just shifts to the next yes. anxiety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But at the same time, I was like, 
I need to live in the present. I need to, I'm not going to fret about X, Y, and Z. Like, this is where I am now. This is this is the stage that I'm at. Let's just be present in this stage. Enjoy this stage. Mm. Enjoy, yeah, where we're at. And I had this really awesome pregnancy app. Uh, I think it's called Pregnancy Plus. And I got to see the baby, um, like, in real Wow. Time and terms. Not not my baby, yep. but a baby at the gestation I was at and it was sort of floating in this like it was really cool and you could Helps hear the heart visualise what's going on yeah, on the inside. Hundred percent. I loved it. I looked at it like multiple times a day. Because <laughs> I was like, that's my baby that's growing. Yeah. Um so yeah, I was I was elated. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble, with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. What about when Hazel did arrive? Did your, and I don't know what stage of COVID lockdown we were when she did arrive, but did your village arrive? Because it's such a big thing to go through at any time. Did you have people around you for the birth, for after the birth, when you're recovering from giving birth? So we were not in COVID lockdown at the time. We had done two lockdowns, I think. Um, what we were in was the hospital was an RSV, um, which mm. is like a respiratory virus lockdown. So there were no visitors allowed. But basically, um, I went into labour early, much earlier than I thought I would at 38 weeks, which is perfectly normal. But I was like, I'm going to stay pregnant till 41 weeks. And I didn't. Um, that I I had a beautiful um, labour at home um, and got to fully dilated pretty quickly within a few hours. And uh, evidently she was too big. She was uh, almost five kilos, 10 pound 10. So she wasn't going to fit. We tried. So for the uninitiated, what's an average baby like? Um, like 3.5, 3.5. Yeah, yeah, about seven pounds, seven and a half pounds. So she was a big, chunky girl, uh, which I knew I was going to have because I'm six foot two. Um, But, yeah, she just didn't fit. A lot of babies, bigger babies than that, fit out of smaller women. So um, it was a bit of a surprise. So I ended up, um, yeah, going into the hospital, having ending up having an emergency caesarean section. I lost almost three litres of blood. Oh, my goodness. Three litres? Yeah. I think you've got How about six. Is and that a half. It? Oh, I was yeah, going to yeah, say, yeah. I'd not much left they in you after yeah, that. Yeah, they didn't give me a blood transfusion. They gave me an iron infusion um, so that I could make my own, replace my own blood. Um, I went to the HDU, High Dependency Unit, and Hazel unfortunately came out needing some help with her breathing. So she went to the NICU. Scary. So she went to NICU. Um, I went to HDU. We were kind of separated, and it was like, oh my gosh, like I have finally met my long-awaited baby and I had this picture of like 
what it was going to be like to be in the water. Yeah. Scoop her up out of the water and hold her to my chest and say, like, my baby, my baby is here. And I envisaged that, like, fully. Um, And it did not happen. And I got to have her briefly with me in theatre, but she was, like, not a good colour, not in good condition, floppy as. And I was like, just take her, sort her. Because I had said I wanted her to come straight to me. And they, I think they almost just were like, we'll give her to her. Even though, like, because she'll recognise that she really shouldn't be with you and she really shouldn't. So she went and had some help um, and her blood sugar was low, which is like energy level, um, you know, sustaining sustaining energy. Um, And, yeah, and it was like I've been through all of this stuff and none of it would have mattered, none of it, like, really hugely if I had just had my long-awaited baby with me. But I didn't. I was like sitting alone in HDU. So when did you get to get back together and when did you actually get to go home? So we, I went up to see her in Niku and um, had a cuddle with her, but it was really weird. It was like, yeah, I, I, Niku do amazing work, amazing um, life-saving work, but it was just a bit tricky because I... I had been asked to come up because she was upset and then they were like, no, don't come up for in handover. And I was like, you've told me your baby, my baby's upset. Like, I am coming now. So they pushed me up in the bed and then they were doing handover, but she was crying and she was there and I was here and I was like, this is not a vibe. Like, I can't just <laughs> sit here waiting for you. And, you know, she's attached to all these monitors, but I wasn't afraid of those because I've seen them all before and helped families with skin to skin with that kind of stuff before. So I was like, I'm not sitting here any longer. So I just scooped her up and was just kind of holding her. Everything was still just connect, like connected, but I was just holding her and talking to her and um, sort of just moving her up and down so that she knew that I was there, just so she had motion. They were in a flap about it, me touching her. Um, anyway, had some lovely skin to skin there, um, but I got called back down. Like they wanted me to go back down to to HDU, um, and that was awful. To be honest, it was like I I just said I need to be with my baby. Um, I knew that that's what she needed. And but I suppose they're trying to look after you at the same time. Yeah, right? yeah. So, like, the delivery suite staff came up and were like, you need to come back down. We need to take your blood. We need to see if you needed a blood transfusion. We need to do your observations. And I was like, this is where I need to be. And I think there is a bit of a gap. Like, I think we could be providing NICU care and maternal care, postpartum care alongside each other. Some countries do do that. Um, we're where the mother and the baby can stay together, but it's not, we're not in, it's uncharted territory. So I went back down, had some bloods and things. I got myself up for a shower. This is like, you know, just a matter of like three hours after a cesarean section. Uh, But I was like, I need to be with my baby. And I went back up and I just cuddled her and I sang this special song to her that my mum sings to all the grand, her grandies. And yeah, and one of my colleagues was up there with me and took some videos and photos and that was beautiful. Um, I'd expressed about 40 mils of colostrum, which she needed and she guzzled over that night, um, which is a lot because babies only take like one or two mils at a time when they're that little. And then I went and just slept and I set my alarm for like 6am in the morning, got up and I was like, right, I'm going to NICU, I'm ready for skin to skin. And yeah, I arrived, they were like, she's had a good night, we can probably take her off the CPAP once the doctors have done rounds. And I was like, no, we can probably take the CPAP off now because I'm here. (laughs) So I put her on me and I had her skin to skin pretty much all day. 
Um, and then that night we got back to the ward um, and the next day is when we went to the birth centre. But that night there was an announcement on the TV, six o'clock. Oh, um, no. And we were going into, yeah, another lockdown. And I was like, this is not happening to my time. This is my time. This is our time. So, yeah, we went into lockdown. So my whole family came, like immediate family, my brothers, their wives, and the kids, the cousins all came, and the donor came to the birth centre. Um, basically, the birth centre were like, yep, get as many people as you can to visit before midnight because that's when we <laughs> all got into lockdown. Not as many, but like all the important yeah, people. Yeah, so they at least got to... See you, meet her. Yes. But what happens when you do go home? Are you in a bubble with other people? So my sister-in-law and brother, my brother and sister-in-law kind of joined the bubble with me. And my mum joined a bubble with my other brother and his wife because they were due at the same time um, with the baby. And so they went, she went there to look after the toddler and my my other brother and wife kind of joined my bubble and were amazing support. Um, yeah, baked the most amazing focaccia and well I like, bought the dough over <laughs> and then baked it in my house so oh, that the house smell. smelled like oh, focaccia on multiple occasions what, is it lockdown if someone doesn't bake yeah. bread <laughs> yeah, I mean exactly, <laughs> exactly so it was three weeks lockdown and it was tricky because you're right like the village um, it looked a lot different than what I had anticipated um, people turned up that I perhaps didn't expect were going to want to send a massive mailbox. Uh, a couple of midwives from work who I didn't have a heap to do with sent big mailboxes and three of the obstetricians cooked meals. Um, wow. It, it, it's amazing to see who shows up yes. for you. Yeah, yeah. It was really it was really amazing. Um, I tried not to overanalyze solo, the solo mum life too much before. I was like... I can't overthink what I'm, how I'm going to get through and how I'm going to eat and how I'm going to get a shower and how I'm going to make ends meet. I can't overanalyze it because if you overanalyze everything, you'll never do it. And I think that's probably the same with like just having a baby, like people um, putting it off and putting it off because they're not ready or they don't have enough money saved or whatever. And that's probably not so true. Well, that's not where the fertility world are at, but or infertility world, but a lot of people will do that. But actually I just was like, do you know what? I've got to dive in. I've got to suck it and see what it's going to be like. And every day is going to be different. Every day is going to be and like have new challenges. And it totally did. Um, but it's, yeah, it's been a ride. And I guess uh, touching on the practicalities thing of it a little bit, um, I suppose uh, couples go from having these two incomes and, you know, being able to sort of have a better financial position and then they drop down to one so they have to adjust to it. But you're sort of running on this one income. How, how, did, how did you find that from going from being in full-time employment to not? Yeah. So it's, yeah, it's, um, it's hand-to-mouth. Yeah, it's hand-to-mouth. And it's um, pretty full-on, to be honest. That's... Um, been really hard but I've I've um, had some amazing support from a couple of people um, some very generous um, people in my life that mm. have helped to keep me afloat but that has uh, um, been probably the biggest stressor not Hazel she's perfect she's wonderful and joyful and curious and inquiring and inquisitive and fun and 
constantly learning and constantly um, just bringing like such immense joy to my world. Um, you make me cry. Yeah. Just hearing you talk about how, yeah. She's just joy. perfect. The like joy. she's perfect. There's no problem. The only time she has a wobbly is if I turn the TV off or I don't, <laughs> or I don't give her another piece of chocolate. So like those are very real things. Standard, standard. We like, all know what that yeah, feels like. Yeah, when that Netflix series finishes or yeah. the block is finished and you've eaten it in one mouthful, <laughs> like that's heartbreaking. But she is so amazing and she's wonderful in everything I ever dreamed of. It was always her. But it's... Yeah, everything else, all of the other adulting, making ends meet. Um, it's hard. Deciding, yeah, deciding what's the priority to buy, deciding which bill I'm going to leave for a little bit longer. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, even just, yeah, it's adult stuff. Adult yeah. stuff is the hard stuff. She is not hard. Um, and and do you ever feel lonely in that, trying to navigate all that stuff on your own? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I think um, a lot of that, there's a lot of things that I think, oh, it'd be probably quite good if I had a second brain to just kind of put um, put our ideas together about what we could do. I think we'd probably go, we'd probably save a bit better and maybe go on a few more like little holidays and things if I had somebody else. But like, I just, we just got to stick in our rhythm. Like, we just, we just stay in our rhythm and um and that is really important to me is staying in our rhythm. So it's, you know, getting up around a particular time and getting her down to bed at around a particular time. You know, like I, I've got a few hacks. So it took me eight months to work out the most important mum hack that I've ever, ever come up with. And that is I've got my filter coffee. It takes like 10 to 12 minutes to brew it every morning. But it's quite hard to get up and do that Um first thing in the morning. So I have started making it the night before and putting it in a thermos beside my bed. Holy and that is dedication. All, all, I've got to, all I've got to do, like it's a true sign of addiction because quite often <laughs> I'm just thinking about the next morning's brew. But yeah, all I've got to do is just roll over and pour myself a cup of liquid salvation. Genius. Genius. Liquid salvation. It's just, it's so good. And Hazel knows, she knows what that is. So, that's my mum hack. Um, most important thing. It took me, yeah, until she was about eight months to come up with that. But, yeah, it's a juggle. Um, but our rhythm is, yeah, our rhythm is our rhythm. And I think people probably get a bit annoyed with me sometimes because I'm like, I've got it. We've got to go home for Hazel's nap because that's my downtime. That's when I get to make the second coffee. No, you, you get to do you. <laughs> yeah. You're, you're in charge here. One thing I did want to ask you about is I know that for a lot of my mum friends, going back to work is a wrench and it's a way up as to what you end up losing in terms of time with your child as well as the cost of childcare. How have you navigated that whole question? That's been huge. It's been really huge. So, um, yeah, she was only born and I was sort of fretting. Well, I was still pregnant and I was fretting about what I was going to do and my boss was like, I just want you to enjoy having a baby and we'll talk about this when she's like 10 months old. But you can't really do that because you have to think about childcare and a good centre or carer will have a waiting list. And so I had to be thinking about it beforehand and I was and I got Hazel on, on the waiting list um, really early on, which was only a few months old. Um but yeah, that that's really hard is knowing that I don't want to work full time because I want to be present for my long awaited baby. I want to be available. I don't want to be missing out on all the cool stuff that she does and she says. Um, I don't want her to be with someone who at that time was 
effectively a stranger um, enjoying all that cool stuff. Um, so I want to just work part-time so she gets an opportunity to build a relationship with someone else and build relationships with little friends. But actually financially, that's not beneficial at all. And in fact, I'm better off not working. <laughs> so, but I'm doing it. I'm doing the part-time thing and I'm not necessarily benefiting at all financially from doing that. I'm better off um, being a full-time mum and receiving government supports um, financially. And and what's happened is my boss has been really amazing. Uh, my bosses have been really amazing and I'm kind of in a um, what we call a flexible working arrangement where I'm working from home, which is kind of unheard of for a midwife, but yeah, and picking up a little bit of clinical work. Mm. Well, it's great having those um, employers that support you in, in that right way. So um, much, yeah. So just wanted to also talk about um, your lovely donor, Stuart. Yeah. How, what's his involvement in your life um, sort of as you guys go forward? Yeah, so he is Hazel's precious uncle, Stuart, um, and his husband is Uncle Anadu, um, which has been a bit tricky for her to say as yet, but <laughs> yep. I do, do, do. do. I do, do, do. Oh, cute. Um, and, and they've got a beautiful daughter, and um, they're really starting to yeah have a, a relationship blossom. She's six, so there's a real age difference there. But no, we see a lot of them, um, and... We didn't know how it was going to look. We knew we were happy. Like he just wanted baby cuddles. That was all he wanted out of out of it, and it was going to yeah unfold. And it has unfolded in a really amazing way. And we see yeah we see them more than um, more than I see my own family. I think um, they yeah. In fact, like this morning, um, Hazel had her little baby doll in her front pack, and we were off for a little walk. Um, and I thought, oh, let's wander down to the cafe at the end of the street. And I text them because they quite like that cafe and just said, we're on our way down. Um, do you want to meet up? So, yeah. yeah. What, a, what a cool. great relationship. That's so to, cool. Yeah, yeah. And they were like, we're just getting have. out of bed. Like, <laughs> we're coming. We're coming. Right, right away. Um, and Hazel, yeah, was so excited when I said, yes. Stoot, stoot, stoot. Now, I know you'd like to have more children. Yeah. Is, it, is that on the card soonish? It's another like analyses moment, yeah. So I, I definitely do want to have another baby. I always wanted to have five kids, and I always imagined well, having like five or six kids. Um, but that was, uh, you know, the homesteading life of like a partner and like a really amazing um, job that finances our beautiful <laughs> homesteading life of like <laughs> homeschooling and home birthing and home baked bread and um, so I've scaled that back a bit and I think two kids is probably yeah achievable for me as a solo parent and um, initially when I first had Hazel I was like yeah this is a breeze I'm having another transfer when she's one which is the recommendation if you've had a cesarean section is to wait a year um, at least um, at the very least. And then we hit six or 12 months and I was like, whoa, um, <laughs> solids and just like preparing these beautiful, nutritious, amazing meals for her and then just having them pitched across the lounge <laughs> and like very demoralizing, very demoralizing. So, um, and then, and the, and the, I need to be on the move and I need to be exploring and checking things out, but I want you to be close to me, but I want you to pick me up, but don't pick me up, put me down, let me explore. Just so whoo, full on six to 12 months. Um, and I was like, nah, I'm waiting till she's two. So then now we're kind of approaching two and I'm, I'm thinking, 
I probably need to save a bit more money. Yeah. Like you said, though, there'll always be a reason yes, not to. Yes, exactly. Right? And then just in the last 24 hours, I've seen a few newborns and I'm like, no, I just need to, <laughs> I just need to not, yeah, I need to, uh, yeah, yeah, I need to crack on. Not right this minute, but yeah, I think when she's two, yeah. Yeah. So I know quite a few single women who are phenomenal, would like to be parents. Do you have any advice for women who are in your situation and are like, okay, I think the option is we're going to go it alone. Like, what have you learned from your journey that you can pass on to others? It's just uh, totally immensely worth it. Don't put it off. Um, there are options. Like, you don't necessarily have to have a baby right now. You could um, just, you know, have a consult with a f- fertility specialist and just see where things are at with um, your ovarian reserve. Maybe you can look at having an egg collection. Obviously, embryos um, are more stable in terms of freezing and thawing and stuff than just eggs. But um, you don't have to compromise your your chance of having a child because of your singleness. singleness. So, yeah, there's a lot of... Th- a lot of steps um, that you can go in to kind of help increase your chances of ending up with a baby. So yeah. so you're kind of saying to other single women, don't let the fact that you don't have a partner stop you. Yeah. That it is still a wonderful, rewarding, yeah. life-changing experience. Well, it's so experience. great not having to rely on someone who's unreliable and <laughs> <laughs> wake up and, like, I know, like, yeah, just cra- like, crack on. It's yeah, crack on if that's what you want to do. And there's actually a huge village of single mums by choice in New Zealand. Um, we've got a Waikato little page that just kind of connects us because we're all immensely busy, busy. So, like, we don't do a lot of catching up, but we're connected. Um, and we all yeah know that we're not alone in our journeys. Well, what um, an amazing chat, and thank you so much for sharing your story. We are now at the finish line, where we like to ask four questions okay. to all our guests. Okay. <clears throat> so, excuse me, so I'll start with question one. People love to try and be helpful when you're struggling to uh, conceive, slash stick the oar in, um, and, you know, give their advice. What's the worst piece of advice someone has given you during the fertility process, or the most helpful piece of advice? Ooh. Most helpful piece of advice. Well, the worst. Yeah. Well, the worst was definitely. Um, people say things like, "Just relax, and it'll happen." Like it's going to not happen. That I one's been coming up a lot. We have to have to like, as a counter in, the, in, in, in this <laughs> yeah. podcast as to how many times that's come Just up. It's public service announcement: Do not tell a woman trying to conceive to relax. Yeah. End of. It's not going to work. It's not going to work if it hasn't worked to just have sex and have a baby. Then saying just re- like it's actually such a conscious conception. So that's one thing. But the yeah, the the one person who said, Oh well, you know, it's designed it's designed for two parents because it's really hard. Oh, oh that's helpful. Yeah, thanks so like, thanks so much. Uh, <laughs> I know that it was a really hard, yeah. yeah. Um, and another, yeah, another person sort of insinuated that maybe I wasn't praying hard enough for a, a oh. husband. Yeah. So how do you, how do you pray harder? <laughs> like I, no. What would you say to, what's maybe the number one piece of advice that you'd give to someone at the start of this journey? Maybe something that you wish that you had known when you got started. Probably two things. How much money I had before. 
and how much time I had before. So it's probably not directly related to the fertility journey, but I wish that I had had like a little snapshot into my future of how constrained I was going to feel in terms of yeah, finances and time. Um, you just don't know what you don't know. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but, so now I just have like no procrastination in my like it just doesn't even exist in my life. Well, I think we can safely say a woman who puts a thermos of coffee beside her bed at nighttime is the picture of organisation. <laughs> yeah, but then if you saw my house, you'd be like, whoa, it's a bomb site. But like there's rhythms. Yeah, so I think I think make the most of the time that you have. You've got space and you've got time and there are things that you can do to enjoy your life and have fulfilment that will be really difficult to do once you do have children. And I know mm. that that can be quite offensive when people say things like that. That, like, oh well, you just wait until. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> but yeah, just there are things that you can do, and and there's a lot of you know um, freedom that childlessness gives you. But that's not to that's not to discount the you know the people that are waiting um, hmm. for their babies. Yeah, hmm. yeah. So question three is about um, what advice would you give to those people supporting someone going through the infertility process? Like, um, how would you tell them they could best help? I think, yeah, show up, um, offer, send a text, check in, see um, see how see how people are doing. Um, I think it is very isolating to do fertility treatment by yourself and not have another, another um, brain to be kind of um, bouncing ideas off of or processing a, a particular test result that's come in. Mm. Um, I was really, like, conscious of just maintaining stable footing and not getting caught up in other people's disappointment or other people's excitement about whatever stage of the situation I was at. So I was like really independent in that respect. But I think most people would enjoy people checking in, just flicking a text, just saying, hey, I'm thinking of you. I know, like trying to remember. And if you're shit at remembering, just like making note in your diary. <laughs> Keep a spreadsheet. Order, yeah. Order <laughs> um, if, no, if your friend's going through fertility treatment, make it, you know, she's said she's got egg collection on this date make a note in your diary and, you know, the night before, flick them a text. And That's say, a great point because people's lives do get busy yeah. and they don't mean to not check in. Yes, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Life. Just consciously make in your effort. situation, I guess, that level of connection and care, you don't want that to end when the baby arrives. Yeah. You almost, that's when you need it even more, right? Yeah, you need yeah. people to show up yeah. in your village. Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. And... Um, I think people also forget, they either forget, um, they have children of their own, they grow up and then they forget how immensely helpful it is if someone just offers to drop off some muffins or sends a text to ask how you are or offers to come and vacuum. Like a friend came and vacuumed when Hazel was little. She was too little for me to really want to be apart from her, but I just really needed to vacuum. You know, just those little things that might take someone 20 minutes or half an hour just feel like immense nuggets of gold to any mum, but yeah, a solo mum that is trying to juggle everything so I think just yeah though just think about those little things that you can do because they feel like a million bucks yeah yeah that's really good advice and people like doing practical things yeah, too, yeah, yeah. feeling useful yeah yeah so question four um obviously so much of this process can be heartbreaking but some of it can be awkward too sometimes even funny yeah uh, have you had any memorable funny moments through your journey the funniest memory for people looking in was me being in labour and, yeah, being the fiercely independent person that I am. I had everything kind of 
perfectly organised and orchestrated. So there was going to be, yeah, there was a, a pool and I needed, it had like a caliphant to heat the water that had to be plumbed into my um, garden hose. I'd got my brother over to set that all up, but there was like a bit of, like once I was in labour, there was a bit of sort of switcheroo tinkering that needed to happen. So my water's broke and I was like, damn it. Oh, well. And so I was just on full organisation mode, we had to reorganise the lounge so that there was space for the pool. So we had to take one of the couches out to the garage. Um, like, yeah, I was just a little bit of a Taipei personality, like just very... And this is while you're fully dilated. Yeah, fully dilated, <laughs> just walking around the house. So like looking in, those were probably some, yeah. I mean, I I tend to not have much of a filter. And so there are moments of hilarity and awkwardness peppered through the whole thing. Anyone who knows me knows that. Um, but probably looking in, that, that could have been one of the most comical times was, yeah, me prepping my house. Um for birth fully dilated yeah <laughs> uh, Jessica thank you so much it's been wonderful talking to you and a big shout out to all the solo parents out there not just the solo mums as well dads and, and, and those um, but thanks so much for telling us I really appreciate it you've been listening to The Human Race a podcast from Wabi Sabi Media and Stuff follow the show on Apple Spotify or any other podcast app and please leave a review it helps other people discover this important content you can also listen at stuff.co.nz slash the human race we'd also love to hear from you email the human race at stuff.co.nz and follow us at facebook.com slash the human race nz or on insta at the human race nz the human race was produced by me Dan Higgins and me Nadine Higgins audio editing and mixing by John Ropeha the associate producer was Jen Black and executive producer was Chris Reed. Thanks very much for listening. Today on League of Our Own, we chat with our feline friend, West Tiger and soon-to-be Panther, Isaiah Papali'i. See what I did there, like Larry? It. Yeah. Like the Warriors are 12 matches down with 12 to go. We talk their season to date, and if they could still land a final spot, we preview round 14 with the Wars and Townsville and a whole host of massive matches, including the Bronx and the Sharks. And we are officially in the state of origin window. It's an Australian representative competition, yet Kiwis <laughs> love this thing. League of Our Own with Blairy and Goran. Listen through stuff.co.nz or wherever you get your podcast. Proudly brought to you by Snap Rentals. If you don't have time to read the in-depth stories or you just prefer to listen instead, The Long Read From Stuff is the podcast for you. Each week we showcase one of our excellent pieces of journalism, telling important or entertaining stories from the world of crime, sport, history, culture and more. You also get to hear from the journalists themselves about how they uncovered the story and how it came to life. So, for your weekly dose of long-form journalism, beautifully read, subscribe to The Long Read From Stuff wherever you get your podcasts.